A change of season is the perfect time to change your look. Update your prescription and choose from the wide selection of brand name frames and state-of-the-art lenses at Pearl Vision. They work with all major vision plans, including iMed. Plus, they'll cover the cost of your insurance copay or your eye exam. Schedule your family's eye exams at pearlvision.com. Valid prescription required. Valid at participating locations. Restrictions apply. Taxes extra. See store for details. And 731-23. Exams available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to Pearl Vision. Some doctors employed by Pearl Vision. Look deeper. One of the largest mysteries in Russian history is the incident at Dyatlov Pass. Many experienced climbers were found with unexplainable injuries, and to this day, there are many terrifying theories that surround their deaths. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host Alexis and this is day 14 of 31 Days of Crime where I put out a new episode every day. This year I am not only including true crime but also conspiracies and cults. In the description below all of our socials are linked as well as our Patreon where supporters get access to bonus content. The last little thing is that I will officially be in London CrimeCon in June. If you want to get 10% off your ticket, use the code GREAT21 in all caps. Right now they are offering early bird tickets, so that means even more money off. When I started this research, I was expecting to watch a few videos and only be able to find some Wikipedia pages, but I came across this site called dyatlovepass.com. This is a site that is purely dedicated to the incident. They have a full timeline with diary entries from the group, pictures of postcards, autopsies, case files, all the photos, everything. If you want to dive even deeper than I am into this case, then this is a wonderful website. Let's start off with who was on the trip. Who were the hikers and why were they there? Generally, when the story is told, I feel like the hikers' identities get pushed past fairly quickly. But this did happen to them, and they are much more than just the Diet Love Pass incident. So I find it important to mention them and their lives before the incident. Igor Dyatlov was the leader of the group that was involved in this incident, and thus he has gone down into history, just as all the victims have. He was born in January of 1936 in the USSR. He was a student at the time of his death, but was also a very talented engineer as well. He was known for assembling well-working radios for the time that he was making them. He started doing climbs with UPI, a school that he was later a student of, after just finishing 7th grade, so he was pretty young. From there, he kept getting better at climbing, and he kept taking others on climbs. He was really known for his very friendly personality and being in great shape, probably due to his avid climber. At the time of the incident, he had been an avid climber for eight plus years. 
However, his life was cut very short as he died at the young age of 23. His body was buried on March 10th, 1959 in Russia. There were three men with the name Yuri on the trip. The first was Yuri D-O-R-O-S-H-E-N-K-O, but we will just call him Yuri D. He was born in January of 1938. At the time of the incident, he was in his senior year at UPI pursuing a radio engineering degree. He was known as pretty impulsive, but really kind to those he knew and especially those that were close to him. His most famous story from one of his previous climbs was when a bear came close to camp and he ran at it with a hammer. He ended up scaring it off without thinking twice and that could have saved someone's life. So. His impulsiveness was not always on the bad side of things. He was also in a relationship with Zena Kay, another member of the incident trip. However, by the time of the Dyatlov incident, they were no longer together. It is thought that Yuri was the one to break things off. Although that's not really important in this case, I thought I would mention it. The next Yuri is Yuri K-R-I-V-O-N-I-S-C-H-E-N-K-O, but we will call him Yuri K. He was born in February of 1935. Yuri K was said to be a very close friend of Dyatlov himself, and they had done many expeditions together before this one. Yuri K's childhood was exceptionally good, because his parents were very influential in the area and very well-educated. The area that him and his parents lived throughout his childhood is now one of the most expensive places to live in that area. Yuri had graduated from UPI in 1957 with a degree in construction and hydraulics. He was also part of another important incident in Russian history, called the K-Y-S-H-T-Y-M disaster. I'm spelling things out because I know I will never be able to pronounce this. This disaster was in September of 1957, and there was a plutonium plant leak. Yuri K was one of the men sent to clean it up, and this kind of ties into the idea that the clothes of the dead bodies were radioactive, but Yuri K was not known to be radioactive from the plutonium plant incident because he knew how to limit the radiation that he was inhaling or being affected by. He was known as a very big jokester. He often entertained all the individuals on their expeditions. On January 24th, when they got into a town before their hike started, Yuri K began to sing loudly and actually got detained by the police. Apparently, they told the group it was illegal to sing in public here because it was a quiet town, even though there's no record of it actually being illegal. So the group kind of found it funny that he got in trouble for this, and funny that the police stated no one could sing in public here. Yuri K was just known as a very happy and fun young man. The last Yuri on this trip was Yuri... Y-U-D-I-N, but we will call him Yuri Y. He was actually the only survivor of the Detlov Pass incident, and this was due to him leaving before the February 2nd incident. 
Yuri Y got sick and left the group before their fateful day. He later passed away in April of 2013, but up until then, he felt enormous guilt for not being on that fateful expedition with his friends. He always stated he should have been there with him. At the time of his death, it was found that he had held on to a small teddy bear given to him by a woman member of the climbing group. We will talk about a little more of Yuri Y later when we get into the theories, because he has presented his own ideas on all of the evidence. Okay, this is like the seventh time I'm trying to record me saying this name, so I'm just gonna spell it. It is L-Y-D-U-M-I-L-A, and her last name is D-U-B-I-N-I-N-A. We will call her Layuda. Was born in May of 1938. Her family moved from a very small town because they had no work available there, so they moved to a larger city to better their life when she was very young. At 17, Layuda was getting into the civil engineering department at UPI. Three years later, she graduated with her degree. She was the youngest in the group that was in the Dyatlov Pass incident. However, she had an extensive history of climbing, having done multiple expeditions before this one. She even had accidentally been shot in the leg before and recovered fully. She was buried on her 21st birthday. Alexander K-O-L-E-V-A-T-O-V, we will call him Alec, was a fourth-year student at UPI studying nuclear physics. He was part of a very big family with five other sisters. He was in very poor health as a child, but he seemed to really grow out of it. Due to his father being in a very high position, he never actually went to traditional school, but his older sister taught him from home. Later in life, his older sister became a very historically famous teacher who did a lot for the special needs children in schools. He worked very well with a team, which made expeditions easy for him. Besides expeditions, he was very active in the university's social life. He only had four years of hiking experience at the time of the incident, but obviously he was not inexperienced. He died at the age of 24 and was buried in May of 1959. Zenadia, K-O-L-M-O-G-O-R-O-V-A, we will call her Zena, was born in January of 1937. At the time of the incident, she was in her fifth year at UPI as a radio engineering major. On a previous climb, she had been bitten by a viper and survived and even though she had been bitten, she refused any help with carrying anything since she did not want to burden others. This greatly shown her very caring nature. She often came up with wonderful ideas in social settings as well, and people looked to her as an innovative mind. She went on many expeditions with Dyatlov and just many expeditions in general. She did have a romantic interest in Igor Dyatlov, but Nothing seemed to have ever come from it. She died at the age of 22 and was buried in March of 1959. Rustem, S-L-O-B-O-D-I-N, we will call him Rustem, was born in January of 1936. He graduated from UPI a year before the incident. 
He was known to take risks and known as being a star athlete. However, he was very quiet and enjoyed just playing music on his mandolin at home. He had climbed before, mostly with his father, so he was not inexperienced either. Him and his father actually did quite a treacherous climb and made it through unharmed. He died at the age of 23 and was buried with the others in March of 1959. was born in July of 1935. A year before the incident, he graduated with a degree in civil engineering. He was working as part of a construction department when he went on the Dyatlov Pass expedition. He was a very smart individual, receiving amazing grades throughout his time in school, including college. He was known to be very friendly while also being very energetic. He was also 23 years old when he died in the Dialov Pass incident, and he was buried in May of 1959. Semyon Z-O-L-O-T-A-R-Y-O-V, who we will call Sasha, was born in February of 1921. He was the oldest individual on this trip. He was actually an instructor at the time of his death, as he had finished his degree in physical education in 1950. He was unusual for his time period. He was single, and he had tattoos, and supposedly some gold-capped teeth. So he was already ahead of the trending curve. He died on his 38th birthday and was... Welcome to BreezeLine, where you'll say, ta-ta, T-Mobile, because we've got more reliable home internet that's a whole lot faster. In fact, 10 times faster. No, seriously, because we have real internet backed by our fiber-powered network. And T-Mobile, well, they just have a 5G cellular network. So act now to get superior home internet. Find your perfect speed with prices starting at just $19.99 a month for 24 months. Terms and conditions apply. Go to breezeline.com to learn more. Buried in May of 1959. As you can see, most of these people had many things in common. All of them had gone to UPI or were still going to UPI, and most of them were in the engineering or science field. None of them were new to climbing when they got to the Dyatlov climb, which makes this case all the more odd. It would seem that a group of nine experienced hikers, climbers, would be able to do this expedition fairly easily. Anyways, now we are going to get into the actual timeline of the Dyatlov Pass incident. The documentation for this incident started on January 23rd. At this time, it was known that the route that was set was not really studied enough. Apparently, there was a geologist that Dyatlov went to for help planning the trip, but Dyatlov never ended up taking his advice. And there's negating sources on this, but the group apparently thought that Dyatlov was going to send the final route plan for approval, but he never ended up doing that. On the 23rd, the group took a train to the city of Surov. On the train, they were packing and making sure they got everything they needed. I'm going to read a little excerpt from January 23 from the Dyatlov group diary. Quote, 
We're on the road again. We are now sitting in room 531. Or rather, of course, not sitting, but frantically shoving into backpacks, oatmeal, cans, canned meat. The head of provision distribution is overseeing that everybody gets everything. Where are my felt boots? Yuri K, can we play mandolin on the train? Of course, we forgot the salt. Igor, where are you? Where is Doroshenko? Why didn't he take 20 packs? Give me 15 cents to call. The scales, where are the scales? It doesn't fit, damn it, who has the knife? Yuri, take this to the station. Hello, hello, can I get 15 cents? Lydia is counting the money, lots of money. The room is an artistic mess. And here we are on the train. We sang all the songs we know, learn new ones. Everyone got to sleep at 3 a.m. I wonder what awaits us in this trip. What will we encounter? The boys solemnly swore not to smoke the entire trip. I wonder how much power they will have to get by without cigarettes. Everybody is falling asleep, and behind the window, Ural Taiga is spreading in all directions." End quote. So these group diary sections are written by multiple people, which is kind of why it sounds like a conversation. Um, but I wanted to add them in just because they kind of give a look into the actual group's thoughts and what they're doing. So on January 24th, they arrived in Surov in the early morning. They were explained to about the things that were prohibited in the city. This is the day where Yuri K was detained for singing loudly. In their journal, they stated that they did not sing anymore in the train station due to this. That same day, the group also got accused by a drunk person of stealing their alcohol, so they had another run-in with the cops. They had gone to a school to talk with the children, and here's a quote from their journal about that. Quote, Questions didn't end. We had to explain and show to every kid everything, from torches to tents. It took us two hours, and kids didn't want to let us go. They sang songs to each other. The whole school saw us at the station. Everything ended as expected. When we were leaving, the kids yelled and cried, and asked Zena to stay with them. They promised to behave and study well. In the train cart, a young drunk accused us of stealing his booze from his pocket. For the second time this day, the cops were involved. Large waiting room, total freedom of action. We took shifts to watch over our stuff all night long. End quote. On January 25th, they got about 340 kilometers north of their starting point. Here they stayed at a guest house and watched a movie. Here is a diary entry from that day. We got up at half past five, quickly gathered and left for the city of Ivdel with the first bus. After an hour of waiting, we managed to grab a bus. The 25-seater bus was forced to accommodate a full 25 plus 20 backpacks packed into capacity and as many pairs of skis. We were full up to the ceiling. First layer of passengers sat on the seats, on a pile of skis, on backpacks. Second layer of passengers sat on the backs of the seats, finding a place for legs on the shoulders of comrades. It was so tight, however, as not to sing, so we did it almost all the way to Vizhay. The trip was not uneventful. The bus made a smaller detour away from the highway, 
in a village, and we were given the chance to step out, which we did with pleasure. Four of the most agile went far ahead to the settlement to see the power station. Suddenly, the herd, the bus, we rush out the door, but alas, it was too late. The bus already passed by, and we were forced to chance after it as fast as we can, hoping fate would be merciful and perhaps we would catch up with it. However, the first hundred meters clearly demonstrated the advantages of a 50 horsepower engine. Our heels flashed far behind the bus, and the gap widened. The prospect to walk about 30 kilometers on the highway with no breakfast and lunch already seemed quite real, when suddenly I mentioned that fate is merciful. The mercy came in the form of a girl going to Vizhay that hailed the bus and stopped the object of our persecution. A minute later, we were already safely sitting on the second floor of the seats and traveling to Vizhay. We warmly said goodbye to Bilnov's group, who went further. On January 26th, the group traveled in the back of a truck, and this was where most people think that Yuri Y got sick. This would be the reason why he did not perish with the others in the Dyatlov group. Here is an entry from January 26th. We slept in so-called hotel. Two people per bed. Sasha K and Krivo slept on the floor between beds. Woke up at 9 a.m. Everyone slept well despite the fact we did not completely close the small window and the room got a bit cold. Outside temperature is negative 17 Celsius. We did not boil water in the morning. Wood was damp. In the evening, it took us six hours to boil the water. Had breakfast in the dining room, goulash, and tea. When they handed us the lukewarm tea, Datlov said with a smirk, if the tea is cold, then go drink it outside. It will be hot. This was the day that Datlov sent out his last postcard, and it said something along the lines of this. Hello everyone, today, 26, we leave on the route, we arrived well. On February 12th through 15th, I will visit the city that I can't pronounce. I probably will not go home, so let Rufa bring linen to our room for a trip to Penza. From there, I will return on March 5th through 7th. Greetings, Igor. It is also the same day that Rustam sent his last postcard. He said things similar to Dyatlov's card. On January 27th, they finally set off on their trip. They packed their bags and started a trek to an abandoned geological site where they were going to stay the night. At this point, Yuri Y was debating whether to go further on the trip or not, and he made the decision that he would go to the geological site with the group and decide once there. Here is a group entry from their diary. The weather is really good. The wind is at our backs and the lads made a deal with the locals for a horse to drive us second north settlement. But it will be about 25 kilometers from the 41st settlement. We helped Uncle Slava unload hay from a carriage and waited for the horse. We waited until 4 p.m. The boys started copying some songs. One man sang beautifully. We heard a number of illegal prison songs. Before that, we bought four loaves of bread, soft, warm bread. We ate two loaves. Horse is slow. What a pleasure to go without backpacks. We covered eight kilometers in two hours. It's getting dark. The horse is causing the delay. Yuri Yudin is still with us. He suddenly fell ill and he can't continue with the trek. He wants to go 
gather a few minerals for the university and return. There are a ton of pictures of the group at this area doing things and just of the house that they were staying in for the night. So I will include the link to those pictures in the description for those who want to see them. Nothing in the group seemed off at this point except Yuri Y being sick and he was going to get some samples and just go back on his own. On January 28th, it is the official day that Yuri decided he could not go on any longer because of his back pain. Because of this, he decided to head back, but the rest of the group sets off on their fateful journey. Here is a diary entry from January 28th. We were awakened by the rumbling voices of Yuri Kree and Sasha. Weather so far is smiling at us. It's only negative 8 Celsius outside. After breakfast, some of the guys lead by Yuri Yudin, our well-known geologist, went to look for local minerals. They didn't find anything except pyrite and quartz veins in the rock. Took them a long time to wax their skis and adjust the mounting. Yuri goes back home today. It is a pity, of course, that he leaves us, especially for me and Xena, but nothing can be done about it. There are a lot of pictures from this day also, and it is of the landscape and individuals just doing what they're doing. They did take a lot of pictures, and there's nothing really eerie about them. Like, nothing would give a hint as to what was going to happen. These were just normal pictures of people having a good expedition. It looks like people having fun and being safe and having all the supplies they need. January 29th and 30th went as planned. There are pictures of group members with skis and supplies that show they still had what they needed when setting off. February 1st was the day before the supposed incident. At least, that's what everyone believes. Since no one was with them who survived, it is kind of unknown what exact day something happened. But February 1st was the last day that they entered something in the journal, so it is believed this was the last day they were alive. On this day, there are many false accounts that state the group wrote that they, quote, now knew snowmen existed, implying that there was some sort of yeti or other fictitional or urban legend being around them. The fact is that this was never written anywhere or stated anywhere. People who have used this information in books and such have falsified it. There is no evidence of this ever being said. There was no journal entry for this day, so the last one we technically have was from January 29th, but in that journal, nothing seemed off. It was told to families that Dyatlov would send a telegram to the college when they arrived back in town. The expected arrival date was February 12th. When no telegram was received on that day, no one really thought anything of it. They just thought, you know, the expedition's taking a little longer than Dyatlov thought, so we'll just wait. However, it wasn't until February 20th, eight days after they were supposed to be back, that searches began. And in my opinion, this hurt the case more. I think if there had been searches earlier, then maybe there would have been more answers, more evidence, or maybe even some of the people would still be alive. But we obviously cannot go back and start searches earlier. 
The first day that something was found was February 25th. On this day, they found the ski tracks that were thought to be from the Dyatlov group. So, like they should have, they began to follow them. On February 26th, they finally found the tent that the group had been staying in. And that's where things started to get really weird and concerning. The sides of the tent were cut open from the inside out. This means that those who were inside the tent cut it to let themselves out rather than just unzipping the entrance. To this day, it is not known why this happened, but there are many theories. To me, it is interesting because this means whatever happened was immediate enough to where they had to cut themselves out of the tent. They were consciously ruining the only structure they had with them. And without that structure, there was a much larger chance of people dying. So it was something that pressing that they were okay with messing up the shelter. But later in the story and evidence, you will see that certain things point to them not being rushed out of the tent. And to me, that makes things just so much more confusing. If they weren't rushed, why didn't they just use the door? And if they were rushed, how did they get some of the stuff that was found on their bodies? It was also found that personal belongings, including clothes, were still inside the tent, but there was no one in or around the tent. They did find footprints around the tent, but because rescuers were not thinking that everyone in the group was dead, they didn't really preserve this information very well. These footprints looked organized to those who saw them. It was basically a line of footprints with a larger person in the back as their footprints intercepted over others. At times, certain footprints would go off from the group and then come back randomly. These footprints are one of the things that shown that at least one person was in boots, but most were in socks or barefoot. It also shown that they left the tent in a fairly organized manner, which kind of negates the cutting of the tent from the inside out. It is also documented that there were unknown footprints, but those could have been the rescuers' footprints themselves. I have a few quotes from the people who found this evidence, so here we go. Quote, when we finished taking inventory of the tent's contents, we moved it to the helicopter pad. Radiogram, we managed to identify footprints of eight or nine people, starting from the tent and going about one kilometer down the slope. And then they were lost. One person was in boots, the others were only in socks and barefoot. End quote. Some members of this rescue team claimed that these footprints started from right outside the tent. Others stated it was a little bit of a space, and then they started, which would beg the question of, how did these footprints get from the tent to where they started? Here's another quote. There were no footprints right around the tent, because when the Dialove group dug, they had stacked the snow all around, and later the snow was drifted by the wind, thus covering all the tracks. And one more quote. There were footprints of bare feet, but in socks. And occasionally we could make out the tread of a ski boot. All of these prints were raised higher than the actual wind-scoured surface of the slope, 
We follow these prints from the tent in the direction of a spreading cedar. So there's different ideas of where these footprints were going, what they mean, and where they started. Around this time, rescuers also found a few more things. They found money and train tickets for everyone in the group. This helped them count out a criminal act, at least in their eyes, because they assumed someone would have taken these valuable things if the group had been robbed or run into anyone else on the mountain. There was also a flashlight found about 450 meters down from the tent. It had been on, but it had since run out of battery. There was also one piece of a broken ski about 20 meters from the tent. From all the evidence found in and around the tent, they concluded that many people, if not all, did not leave with their clothes, shoes, or hats. Due to this, rescuers believe that whatever happened had to be life or death, otherwise there was no reason for nine people to run off down the mountain in the middle of a winter night with no clothes on. Instead of fleeing towards the storage site, these footprints also went to the forest, which kind of suggests that the group was needing to get out of sight or hide faster. There are plenty of photos of the footprints and tent that they found, and that is also on the dietlovepass.com website. It wasn't until February 27th that bodies were starting to be found. The first two to be found were Yuri D and Yuri K. Here is a quote from someone who found them. Quote, while looking carefully around the area, Shavin noticed something dark close to a cedar tree. There was a flat area next to the cedar, and on this were remnants of a fire. About two or three meters from the fire, they found Yuri D, frozen without his clothes and with his hand burned. And a little to the side, they found Yuri K in the same state. Under Yuri D's body, there were three or four cedar branches of about the same thickness. Yuri K's right leg has no footwear. On his left foot, there's a brown sock that is torn. Another sock like this was discovered half burnt next to the fire. On the backs of his hands, the skin is torn. Between the fingers, there is blood. The index finger is also torn. The skin of the left shin is torn and covered in blood. There are no more visible injuries on his body. Yuri D has woolen socks on his feet, and over these socks, another lighter sock. His ear, lip, and nose are covered in blood, and on his left hand, the middle finger is bloody. So Yuri D and Yuri K were found next to a large cedar tree that had broken branches fairly high up. This suggested that at some point they climbed the tree, rather to hide or look for something else, the reasons unknown, obviously. They were also found with the remains of a fire near them, suggesting that they tried to survive, which is seen in all the bodies in different ways. Yuri D was found face down and Yuri K was found face up. However, Yuri D's lividity did not happen to match how he was lying. This, as well as other things, shown that these bodies were laid here after death. Yuri D was wearing a sleeveless undershirt, a checkered shirt, shorts, swim trunks, and underwear. He was not wearing any shoes, but did have on wool socks. Here is a list of his injuries from the dietlovepass.com. 
In the hair of the deceased, an expert found particles of moss and pine needles. His hair was burned on the right side of the head. His ear, nose, and lips were covered in blood. He had a swollen upper lip with dark red hemorrhage. His right cheek, soft tissue, was covered with a gray foam and a gray liquid coming from his open mouth. The most reasonable cause for this is pulmonary edemia. His ear was a bluish red color, and in the right earlobe, and tragus dense patches of brown-red color, so most likely dried blood. The inner surface of the right shoulder had two abrasions with no bleeding in the tissues. The right armpit had a 2 inch by 1.5 inch bruise. There was a brown-red bruise with different sizes in the upper third of his right forearm. There was swelling and small abrasions in the rear of the right hand soft tissue. There was a bruise with bleeding into the underlying soft tissue on the back of the right hand. There was an abrasion on the lower third of his left shoulder. There was also an abrasion in the left elbow. And on the inner surface of the left forearm, there was a surface skin wound that was covered with dry blood. There was also pale bruises on the shins of both legs. His official cause of death, though, was hypothermia. However, with all of these weird spots with abrasions and bleeding and bruises, it is greatly negated that his actual death was caused by hypothermia. Each of the individual's autopsy reports will be on the show notes page for this episode on greatunsolvedpod.com. Yuri K. was wearing an undershirt, long sleeve shirt, swimming pants, long underwear, and one torn left sock. Here are his injuries. He had a bruise on the forehead, bleeding on the right temporal and occipital region due to damage to the temporalis muscle, bruise around the left temporal bone, the tip of his nose was missing, but there was no traces of blood, which it was probably taken off by an animal after his death because after death, blood does not flow. He had frostbitten ears. A portion of the epidermis from his right hand was found in the mouth of the deceased. The back of the right hand was swollen and the fingers were brownish. The tips of the finger on the right hand were dark brown and there were minor skin abrasions on the soft tissues. The palm of the right hand was a bluish color. In the middle of the phylax, (laughs) I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, of the fingers, there was four or five wounds that had hard edges and a charred surface. There was abrasions on the right side of his chest. There was dark abrasions on the left wrist and the back of the left hand was swollen. There was a pink and brown bruise on his left buttock. There were three linear skin lesions with straight edges on the upper third of the left thigh. There were patches of brown-red epidermis peeling from the back of the left foot. There were dark brown abrasions on the right shin, and there were more dark brown abrasions on the inner left thigh. Dyatlov was found the same day about 300 meters away from both of Yuri's bodies. He was laying on his back with his head towards the tent. When they found him, his jacket was unbuttoned and his hands were in fists, which 
they felt was kind of weird for someone who was freezing to death. The watch that was on him stopped at 5.31, but it is unknown why. Here are some of his injuries. Minor abrasions on the forehead and upper eyelids. There was abrasions above the left eyebrow, the left cheek, and on the right cheek as well. There was dried blood on his lips. His lower jaw had a missing incisor. He had bruised knees without bleeding into the underlying tissues. Both ankles had abrasions. Many small scratches were on his forearms and palms. There was a purple-gray discoloration on the back of the right hand. The left hand was brown and purple with reddish-brown bruises in the brown and purple. There were superficial wounds on the second and fifth finger on the left hand and the skin wound in the palmar surface in the second and fifth fingers of the left hand. There were no internal wounds on Dyatlov, which is kind of odd once we get into some other autopsies. Zenadia was the next to be found. Her face and hands shone severe frostbite, but she had on a lot more clothes than the other three men. Her injuries were as follows. Dark red abrasions on the right front part of her head. There was a pale gray area above the right eyebrow. There was red abrasions on the upper eyelids. Brown red grays, I guess, on the bridge and tip of the nose. There was numerous abrasions on both of her cheeks. And there was bruised skin along the whole right side of the face. There was also red abrasions on the back of both hands rather than the palms and frostbites on pretty much all the fingers. Her cause of death was a little different than the other three. It was still hypothermia, but it was due to a violent accident, supposedly. It has never been clarified what people think this violent accident is, but when we get into the theories, you will see what it could be. Rustum was found fourth and was only 480 meters away from the cedar tree that both Yuri's laid under. He had on some clothes, but most importantly, he had on four pairs of socks and one felt boots. His watch stopped at 8.45 a.m. Here are some of his injuries. Hemorrhage in the temporalis muscles, red abrasions on the forehead, two scratches on the face, bruises on the upper eyelid of the right eye with a hemorrhage into the underlying tissue, traces of blood coming from the nose, swelling, and a lot of small abrasions on both sides of the face, cherry bruises on the medial aspect of the left arm and left palm, swollen lips, bruises on the left tibia, epidermis is torn from the right forearm, and there's a fracture in the frontal bone. It was thought that the skull fracture he got was done with a blunt object. The man who did his autopsy stated that this force probably sped up his death, but his death was probably still from hypothermia. It was found that his injuries were opposite to what he would have gotten if he had just fallen. So that begs the question of where he got these injuries. His liver mortis was not consistent with how he was lying either, which showed he was moved after death. Talking about liver mortis real quick, um, because I didn't do it when we started. This is when blood pools in the body after death. Therefore, if you die while lying on your back, the lividity will be 
along your whole backside. This takes about 8 to 10 hours after death to fully set in, and then once it sets in, you are able to move the body and still have lividity on the original part of the body, like how it was laying. So that kind of makes me question, how long were the other people alive after these people died? Because if they had to wait 8 to 10 hours to flip them and still get this lividity that was factually shown in all the autopsies, then they had to be alive for quite a bit of time after these people died. And when I say his injuries kind of go against the idea that he fell, it was mostly stated that there were no injuries to the inside of his hands, only to the backs of his hands. When you fall, you generally put your hands out palm first to catch yourself, but this was not the case. So many people have theorized that maybe he was hit with a blunt force object rather than falling. After his body was found though, it was two months with no luck. But finally, when the snow started to melt in May, the other bodies were found. This is where the Dyatlov Pass den comes into play. The den was made by the four remaining members of the group. There is evidence that suggests they cut wood and brought it there, and also did other things to try and survive as long as possible. However, one thing that's never been found is the knife that was used to cut the branches found there. And that kind of puzzles quite a few people. Layuda was the first one to have some just crazy internal injuries. And after her, quite a few people also had them. She was wearing clothing from the other members who had died near the cedar tree, showing that these members were in fact using others' clothes to try and keep them alive themselves. This was thought to be established because many people falsely state that maybe paradoxal undressing happened, which is when you are so hypothermic that it feels like you're burning, instead of cold, so you take off your clothes. However, the bodies that were found later were wearing the clothes of the people's bodies who were found earlier, suggesting that paradoxical undressing did not happen. They were simply taking the clothes of the deceased to try and keep themselves alive. Anyways, here is Layuda's injuries. Soft tissues are missing from around eyes, eyebrows, nose bridge, and left cheek. The bones were all partially exposed. There were damaged tissues around left temporal bone. The eye sockets were empty, which means her eyes were both missing. Her nose cartilages are broken and completely flattened. Soft tissues of the upper lip were missing. The teeth and the upper jaw were both exposed. Her tongue was also missing. Ribs 2, 3, 4, and 5 are broken on the right side. Ribs 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 were broken on the left side. There was a massive hemorrhage in the heart's right atrium, and there was a bruise in the middle left thigh. Her tongue was found missing, and when they found her, her mouth was open. She was found lying on a ledge with water running over her. Inside her stomach, there was a large mass of dark brown mucus mass that suggested her heart was still beating when her tongue was removed, because that would push blood down into your stomach, and then you would have dried blood. It is stated she died of a hemorrhage to the right atrium of the heart and internal bleeding. 
which makes sense with all her injuries. But people are still wondering where all these injuries actually came from, because there has really never been an explanation for that. Semyon seemed to have very similar injuries to Layuda. His eyeballs were missing, he was missing soft tissues around the left eyebrow, the bone was exposed, there was an open rune on the white side of the skull where the bone was also exposed, he had a flail chest, and broken ribs of 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 on the right side. Semyon had a camera around his neck when he was found. This made the total expedition cameras 5. Um, Yuri Y stated that he only knew they were bringing four, so this was kind of a secret camera, and to this day people wonder why, why it was a secret. The other thing that people wonder is how did he have time to grab the camera, and why did he grab the camera if other people were running out of the tent without even shoes or clothes on? It had to be something important that he wanted to get in record for him to take the time to grab this camera, even though everybody was in a rush. If they were, in fact, in a rush, we don't really know that for sure. Due to the injuries being the same as the woman found before him, despite their large size difference, it is believed that two different events caused these injuries. Basically, because of their size difference, the event that Layuda went through to cause these injuries could not have been the same event that Semyon had gone through, because it would take different forces to impose these injuries on them. Alexander was found wearing the most amount of clothes, although he still had no hat or shoes. He had a lack of soft tissue around the eyes, and his eyebrows were missing, and the skull bones were also exposed. The bridge of his nose is straight, the cartilage is soft, and has unusual mobility, which means it moves a little too quickly, or a little too easily. There was an open wound behind his ear, there was a deformed neck, and diffuse bleeding in the underlying tissues of the left knee. There was softened and white skin on the fingers and feet, which kind of shows he was in a wet environment, and his skin basically was a gray-green color. Now, one of the main theories um, is that special Russian police that were under the command of Stalin were the ones to do something to these people. And this basically comes from Alexander's autopsy. He had a messed up neck and a wound behind the ear. Generally, when these special police killed people, that's how they did it. There would be a wound behind the ear and they would break your neck. So that is kind of where that theory came into play. Some of these injuries seem to be from a struggle, but the autopsy doesn't really specifically state this. This autopsy, just as a few of the others, was very vague, which to me suggests that they are trying to cover something up, or just trying not to get on anyone's bad side. The last body to be found was that of Nikolay. Since he was so well-dressed for the weather, just as the body found before him, many believe that these two men were already dressed and outside when everyone felt the need to flee the campsite. He had on two watches. One stopped at 8.14 and the other stopped at 8.39. He had multiple fractures to the temporal bone, 
and he had a bruise on the upper lift of the left side and a hemorrhage on the lower forearm. The man who did his autopsy stated that the fall on the rock where he was found is what caused his large fracture to his skull. However, for many people, it seems more consistent with being thrown onto the rock rather than falling. After receiving this fracture, he would not have been able to move, but could have been alive for a few hours still. When all of these bodies were tested, many of their belongings tested radioactive. To this day, it has not really been explained why. The official statement on this case is that the group died of hypothermia and an avalanche. However, there is literally no evidence to support the avalanche theory. And while they could have died of hypothermia, that does not explain where any of these injuries came from. So the theories just run rampant. That is where we are going to stop this episode. This is going to be a two-part episode, obviously, because I did not get to the theories, but just because I wanted to go so in-depth on it, it felt like it had to be two episodes, because no one would really want to listen to a two-hour podcast episode. <laughs> At least I don't think you would. Let me know if you would. But anyways, tomorrow we are going to dive into the theories that surround the Diet Love Pass incident, because there are just so many and they factor into so many things. This is such a confusing case, so I hope you will come back tomorrow. Be sure to follow us on social media for updates, and check out all the links in the description to get to our show notes so that you can look at the autopsy files if you so please. Stay safe and have a great day.